So some of you might know me, some of you might not. I am the intern here. My name is Graham, and Adam has given me the privilege to preach um, this Sunday, which is just a great opportunity for me. But before we start off, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we dive into your word um, this morning, would you just bless my words? Would you uh, bless our ears? Uh, anoint me with your Holy Spirit and help uh, the things that I have to say come from you. Would you uh, impact our hearts and teach us new lessons in new ways? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do I have any Star Wars fans in the crowd? Ever since... Okay, a couple. <laughs> Ever since I was a kid, I loved watching Star Wars, right? I just thought it was the coolest thing. Like, I thought the Force was so cool. Like how Luke finally pulls the X-Wing out of the swamp using the Force. I remember after I watched Star Wars, I ran back to my room and I shut the door and I put an object just slightly out of reach and I would try to pull it towards my hand. And no matter how red my face got or how many veins started popping out of my neck, I never seemed to make it budge. Oh, it's so disappointing. I wanted the Force. So Star Wars has become relevant again. Uh, around this time uh, last year, the episode seven came out, Star Wars The Force Awakens, right? And the director, J.J. Abrams, he, he wrote this brilliantly because he made it so you could be completely fresh to Star Wars, jump right in, and still enjoy it. There's enough of a new storyline, there's enough of new characters, things like that, where you can still enjoy the movie. But he also made it so that if you are a Star Wars fan, there's little treats here and there for the fans thrown in, right? So for the first time viewer, this clunky spaceship right here is just a clunky spaceship, right? But if you're a fan, this is the Millennium Falcon, right? If you're a first time viewer, this duo is just some old dude and Bigfoot with a crossbow, right? But if you're a fan, you're screaming and applauding when they come out because this is Han Solo and Chewbacca. So in the same way, Luke, he's writing to two audiences when he writes his gospel. He's writing to an audience who doesn't really know about the Old Testament. They don't have any expectations about the Messiah. They don't have a backstory. But he's also writing to people who have an idea of the Old Testament and can kind of get a, a deeper meaning in some of the symbols he's showing. Keep that in mind as we, as we go into our passage today. So we're going to continue going in overflow. So we're going through Luke. We're starting in chapter 6, and we're going to be starting here in verse 12. So join with me in verse 12. Verse 12 says, One, one day, soon afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. And he prayed to God all night. So already I'm impressed. Jesus just spent an entire night in prayer. So I've been a Christian for a while. I've been a Christian for about a decade. Some of you might laugh at that. I've, only, I've been a Christian for about a decade now. And I'm kind of embarrassed to admit, I don't think I've spent more than an hour of prayer with God. And Jesus just crushes me. He spent an entire night in prayer with the Father. But why? Why does Jesus go to the mountain to pray? 
So the first thing we should note that Jesus is doing is he's joining in a long line of godly men who go to the mountain to commune with God, right? Abraham does this, Moses does this, Elijah. They all go to the mountain to commune with God. And as we'll later see in the text, Jesus, he's about to make a really big decision. So he goes off to get some clarity and to commune with God. So the first thing I think of when I see this, I think of Superman. All right, bear with me. So Superman, when you see Superman, he's doing the impossible, right? He's, he's flying around, he's lifting up cars, he's fighting villains, he's using his powers, right? But Superman, if you're familiar with Superman, some people don't know this, that Superman has to go to the yellow sun to sustain and regain his powers. So sometimes when Superman gets tired, he has to know, I need to go to the yellow sun. And I know this isn't a perfect analogy, and all analogies fall short for Jesus, but I feel like this gives us a glimpse at Jesus' relationship with God. Because in a similar, similar way, Jesus goes to have communion with God to get clarity and rest. So what does this say about my relationship with God? I'm already convicted, because taking time with God alone, it's hard. For me, I, I usually try to strive each morning for about 30 minutes a day in the morning, just silence and solitude, devotion with God. And it's pretty tough, right? It's pretty difficult. Uh, sometimes I find myself, I'm only able to get 10 minutes. Other times my mind is wandering or I'll fall asleep. But I try to strive for 30 minutes a day. And I notice when I do this practice, it usually, it helps me out with, with clarity and my focus throughout the day. But I also notice on the other side, when I'm not taking this time, I feel like I'm gut reacting to situations. I get angry more quickly. And I don't just slow down to listen to the Holy Spirit. See, a theologian that I really like in one of the podcasts I listened to said, maybe the better question is, when referring to silence and solitude, it's not whether we can afford to, but whether we can afford not to take the time for silence and solitude. See, Jesus realizes that his communion with God is important and is going to give him clarity before his next big decision. All right, so let's, let's look at the big decision. Let's look at the next portion of text here. L look with me in the next, in the next portion. It says, at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Simon, who was named Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, who later betrayed him. So I'll be honest, when I look at this portion of scripture, it can be really easy to, to just read past it, right? It's just another list of names. It's kind of boring at first glance. You're like, okay, let's get to the miracles. Let's get to the demon exorcisms. Let's get to the arguments with the Pharisees. Let's get to the fun, juicy parts, right? But if we simply read over this, which it can be easy to do, we'll easily miss out on some of the deeper meanings that this text has. You see, throughout Luke, there's a constant underlying theme of Jesus redeeming and restoring Israel. 
What? What are you talking about, Graham? Redeeming and restoring Israel. That sounds a little wacky. You see, right off the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he do? He gets baptized, and he's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. And for some of us, this should feel like deja vu, right? We feel like we've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? Because it directly parallels the Exodus account, right? The Israelites, they go through the Red Sea, and then they're led by God into the desert to, and for, 40, for 40 years, not 40 days. But Jesus, he kind of, he ones up, he ones up the Israelites here. Instead of, instead of asking for manna and grumbling and complaining, he, he fasts. He doesn't fall into temptation. He doesn't worship a, a golden calf like the Israelites do. So when we see this, when we see that Jesus picks 12 apostles, our Old Testament ears should, should perk up a little bit, right? So let's set the scene. For a while now, the Jews, they've been in captivity. They hate their captivity to different nations. They've been in captivity to the Assyrians, the Babylonians. As we saw in Esther, they've been in captivity to the Persians, then to the Greeks, and now the Romans. And in all that time in the captivity, the 12 tribes of Israel were scattered. They went everywhere. So when Jesus is picking 12 disciples, immediately we should be thinking, oh, this is Messiah language, because Israel is anticipating a Messiah who's going to draw the 12 back together and redeem Israel, bring them back to their glory days, right? So we should be thinking, hmm, this is Messiah language. But in many ways, this is not, this is not the new and restored Israel that many people expected. Our first question should be, wait, who are these guys? Who are the 12? So if you're going to pick 12 men to change the world, where would you go? I know for me, I'd probably go to like the best universities, Fortune 500 companies. I'd probably go to like the militarily elite, you know, Navy SEALs. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go to the political elite, the social elite, the military elite. Rather, he picks the very people we would least expect. As I picture Jesus handpicking from the disciples, I picture dodgeball in gym class. You know what I'm talking about? We've all been there, dodgeball in gym class, where uh, we all line up against the wall. There's two captains, and they start picking teams. And for some of this, this brings up bad memories. Like, this is like post-traumatic stress. We're thinking, oh man, don't get picked last. Don't get picked last, right? And we know who's going to get picked first, and we know who's going to get picked last. The big, strong kids always get picked first, and the run of the litter always gets picked last, <laughs> right? And as Jesus is picking out of the disciples, I just picture the shock on some of the men's faces. Their jaws drop, right? As he's picking the people we would least likely expect. When some of the apostles get picked, instead of saying, Jesus, you know, my, my throwing arm's not that good, I could picture Simon and the fisherman saying, you know, Jesus, uh, we're not that educated. I don't know if you want us on your team. Or I could picture, picture Matthew, the tax collector. I could picture him saying, you know, Jesus, I'm a tax collector, 
people don't really like me around here. I, I'm not that good for your team. Or could you picture Judas, the betrayer? Jesus, you know, some people say I flip-flop on my stances a lot. I might not be the loyal person you want for your team, right? And I'll be honest, this does not look like the A-team. This is not the Justice League. It looks more like the Goonies, right? This is a ragtag group of people. Yet this is exactly the team Jesus handpicks to be his representatives. But these guys, they're not, they're not just unqualified. They're an extremely diverse bunch. So if you look at the text again, Luke doesn't give us much information about who these guys are. It's a, it's a quick list. But what we do know from this passage and other scriptures is that the only thing these guys really have in common is that they're Middle Eastern Jews. Other than that, they're, they're pretty diverse. Their professions are different. Their education's different. Their geography is different. Even their ideals are extremely different. For instance, look at Matthew, the tax collector, and then Simon, he's a zealot. So take for a minute, if this room is filled with the disciples that Jesus is picking from, Matthew would probably be over here where Fred's at, and then all the way on the other side is Simon the zealot, probably Philip, right? These guys are going to be on opposite sides of the room because they hate each other. They're politically opposites. <laughs> Good thing we have love in this room, but not probably for the disciples because, all right, for instance, the zealots, the zealots were these extremists. They wanted to liberate Israel by force, most of the time with the sword. These guys are not peaceful protesters, okay? They wanted, some of them, as Adam told me, even took an oath to say, I'm going to kill anyone in allegiance to Rome. Okay, so this is bad news for Philip. This is bad news for Matthew, the, the tax collector, because the tax collectors, these guys, they're like the opposite of Robin Hood. They're Roman puppets, okay? The tax collectors took from the poor and gave to the rich, and probably they, they pocketed a little bit for themselves too. Okay, so these guys are complete polar opposites. So in our time, the best analogy I could say is, could you imagine having like a Hillary supporter, diehard Hillary supporter, and an unapologetic Trump supporter, and saying, hey guys, get along. It's like putting two porcupines in a pillowcase and saying, all right, get along. <laughs> this is crazy. So maybe when you see Jesus' team, you're like me, and you're thinking, Jesus, what were you thinking? This is a crazy team. This is not gonna, these guys are not going to get along. They're diverse, and they're unqualified. And this is the 12 men you've chosen to unite Israel. The very foundation of our church is on these 12 men. How? How is Jesus going to change the world using 12 people who are such polar opposites? So if you've ever been on a sports team, you might kind of understand how this works a little bit. Uh, I played football in high school, and we had a very diverse group of guys. Racially, we were different. Social economically, different. Ages, different. I mean, beliefs were different. I had guys on my football team who adamantly disagreed with me about my faith. They're like, why don't you go to parties? It doesn't make any sense, Graham. They didn't get my faith, you know? But when we put the pads on, when we put our helmets on, when it was game time, we all had to be one. 
We all had to know the same plays. We all had to tackle the other team. We all had to block for each other or else we'd get humiliated. We'd be destroyed, right? We had to have a common mission. And it's the same for the disciples here. We had to have a common mission for this group. Before this, they're a bunch of just ordinary guys who call themselves disciples. They follow Jesus, right? They're disciples. They claim to know him. But then Jesus does something different. He changes their identity, and he calls them apostles. What does that mean, apostle? The Greek word for apostle literally means sent ones. It is the simple shift in their identity that transforms this group into a group on a mission. The 12's mission is not to beat the other team or not simply to get humiliated, or not get humiliated, sorry. It is, it's not to promote their own political agendas, educational backgrounds. It's not to promote the jobs they've had or, or show off who they were supported by. Their mission is simple. Their mission is to follow Jesus and to be sent by him. These men are called to go out to be a physical representation of Jesus to a world that doesn't know him, that has no idea who he is. So this week I was having coffee with someone, and we were talking about um, how Christianity is kind of seemingly diverse. Did you know that Christianity today has over 400 different denominations? 400 different denominations. Isn't that kind of crazy to think about? And I was thinking, sometimes I wonder how much of the diversity, how much of the opposition in the church would be diffused if we could just allow Jesus to qualify us and be sent under his unifying mission. As a church, many of us have the discipleship part down, right? We, we know what it looks like to follow Jesus in our individual lives. I mean, we, we pray, we, we read our Bibles, we go to church. But what does it look like for us to be apostles? What does it look like for us as a church to be sent out. Can you picture with me an Aspen Grove that is entrenched in diversity with our community? An Aspen Grove that, that goes to the overlooked in our society and says, hey, I know you've been overlooked by everyone else. I know you may think you're unqualified, but that is exactly who Jesus wants on his team. Can you picture an Aspen Grove that says, hey, I know you look different. I know you talk different. I know you have different political opinions but I know we can unite over the mission of Jesus. See, that's the miracle of the gospel. So how? How do we do this? In order to do this, we have to embrace the mission that Jesus shows by simply picking 12 ordinary men. Jesus is showing us that we can't simply preserve ourselves or avoid the rest of the world it's filled with different people. It's filled with other people who have different ideas. But rather, we're called to be apostles. For some of us, this is a different, difficult challenge, right? It means getting outside of our comfort zone. Maybe for some of us, it means taking time in prayer to hear or discern God's will. It might not look like an all-nighter like Jesus, but maybe it looks like going to bed just a little bit early 
so we can wake up earlier and take some time with prayer with God. For some of us, it might be, be looking like not feeling overlooked anymore. Some of you might feel like the apostles had. Maybe you feel overlooked. For whatever reason, you don't feel like you have anything to offer to be on Jesus' team. Maybe you feel like that kid in gym class who says, uh, I'm the one who usually gets picked last. You don't want me on, my on your team, Jesus. But Jesus says, I'm a you're exactly who I want on my team. Lastly, what does it look like to be sent? A couple of weeks ago, Adam talked about how Jesus went outside the circles, right? Jesus broke through the boundaries of social class, religious structures, loving the people that look different, act different, talk different. Those are exactly the people he wants us to love, to know and be on mission with. You see, Jesus gave us the perfect example of being sent because he was the first apostle. He did it first. So I have a, I have a story I want to close with. Um, last year, Magdalene and I, we would go to Dunkin' Donuts to study uh, three or four times a week. We, we went a lot. <laughs> And um, as we were going, we got to know the cashier pretty well. His name was Alex. He got to know us so well. He was our regular cashier that he just knew our order by heart. So as we started to get to know Alex a bit more, we realized, oh man, Alex has a lot that's different from me. Alex turned out he's gay. Turned out Alex was actually a cross-dresser too. And for me, this was a little bit outside my comfort zone. I mean, I don't have a lot in common with Alex, right? But as we started to get to know Alex, I felt the tug from Jesus Magdalene, and I felt the tug that said, you should get to know Alex. You should love him. So I started to talk to him more and more, and I got to know Alex a bit better, and I genuinely started feeling a love for this guy who was completely different than me. A love that said, hey, I'm not going to necessarily try to change him, but I'm going to love him with the love of Jesus and see what happens. So I remember Alex, he, he told us one night, hey guys, I'm moving, I'm going to a different Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I, it's a better opportunity for me. And we're, we're pretty sad. So Magdalene and I on the way home, we're, we're thinking, what can we do for Alex that would be nice? Because wouldn't it be a shame if, if we knew him this whole time and he never felt the love that Jesus had to offer for him? So we put together this little gift bag, and on his last day of work, we came in, we wrote a little card, had his favorite candy in there, and he just, he lit up. He just jumped over the counter and gave us a big hug. He said, no way, are you serious? And we gave him the gift bag, and we said, this is the love like, that we wanted to show you, that we felt led to show you. I don't know what Alex is doing right now. I don't know if he came to Christ? Maybe not. But I felt like that was what being sent in my community looked like to people who don't really look like me, don't really act like me, don't really talk like me. I want to ask you, who's the Alex in your life that God calls you to be an apostle to? Who is he calling you 
to be sent to? What does it look like for us as Aspen Grove to be apostles? Let's pray. God, um, thank you so much for this excellent opportunity to preach um, for an awesome church. I am so thankful for Aspen Grove, um, just for the witness that, that this church has through you, Jesus. Um, thank you for our eager intention to want to be like you in our community. And I pray and I exhort that we as a church can look more and more like apostles, that we can be sent ones to our community, to the people who don't necessarily look like us, don't have the same ideas as us, but nonetheless, we can love them like you loved us. God, we love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.